Welcome to the Trap One Podcast. This week, a plan to integrate shape-shifting alien refugees into human society nearly comes undone when a rebel faction tries to take the place of prominent humans in an attempt to conquer the world after the man who thought up the idea buggers off and leaves the planet. But that's enough about the latest Disney Plus Marvel series, The Secret Invasion. We're here to talk about the brand new target novelization of The Zygon Invasion by Peter Harness. I'm Mark and I'm joined by a fantastic panel of Peter Capaldi fans from the Maximum Power podcast. Colin? Oh, I'm just titivating the fronds. An old habit. From The Real McCoy, uh, we've got Adam. I too am titillating my fronds. Um, don't titillate your own fronds (laughs) (laughs) oh it's already explicit tagged isn't it sorry and the creator of Clara Oswald the untold adventures Ruth hello I I am not titillating any fronds in fact I'm raising eyebrows at all the uh, titillating of fronds going on So, uh, before we talk about the book, just uh, a quick sort of temperature check on, on how much we all like the well, the Zygon Invasion and the Zygon Inversion as the as the TV stories were. Uh, Ruth, is this one of your favourites? Uh, I wouldn't say so. It's, it's interesting because when it first came out, I, I really dug it for the most part. But I have called on it a lot since. Um, I think it was on this kind of most recent episode syndrome where... Uh, it's either the best thing ever or the worst thing ever. And I, I, I was really enjoying Series 9, so um, I was kind of riding that high. But I think it's one of those things where on the surface there's a, there's a lot to like, but when you start picking certain things apart, you know, that there are problems in there, uh, maybe politically speaking in terms of the implications or in terms of the sheer amount of uh, ideas they were juggling in this story but I mean I still enjoy it thoroughly you know I'll, I'll always re-watch it and um, I do appreciate the ambition of it definitely. Oh yeah definitely I mean I, I really like Peter Harness in general I think he's a really interesting writer he's what he's what I categorize as, as an awkward bugger of a writer um, <laughs> and Doctor Who has had a few of those and it it's maybe not people we think of always but you know like Robert Holmes I would definitely put under that um, but yeah I think it, it's a really interesting messy story and I, I i mean messy in a good way and uh mm-hmm. yeah yeah I, you know it's from one of my it's one of my favorite doctors it's one of my favorite seasons so i fucking love it i think it <laughs> is uh you know i of course there's problems with every doctor who story and you know you can pick anything apart etc etc i i i admire its ambition i feel it is the closest we get to like the best episode of Torchwood, in a sense, mm-hmm. um, being sort of a bit more adult and a bit more dark. It's also the, the first thick of it crossover episode as well. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I think it has a lot to say, which is not often always the case. You know, it doesn't, it, it's, you know, Mark, we often talk about, you know, Star Trek and uh, how that's, um, the human condition, and, I, and I'm just like, and, and I'm like, yeah, it has something to say, uh, and I think there's a lot of that here. It doesn't, it, and it's it is a very much a mishmash, I think, but it's still, you know, there's a lot to think about in it. Um, so I love it, and it has got some of the, like, like the a terrific cliffhanger, and then it does an even better kind of cliffhanger in the trailer before that the 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 second episode mm-hmm. it's just got so much kapow i love it 
Yeah, I, I love it as well. I'm in the uh, I'm in the camp of absolutely loving it. I think it's one of those stories that's got something for everybody. So, the, you know, the kids watching it, you've got obviously monsters, you've got kind of blobby monsters. You've got the thing that Doctor Who does of making the everyday things seem scary. So even like mm. lift and playgrounds, but then it's also, you know, scary for adults, the idea of sort of radicalization and, uh, you know, kind of war and, and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's um, it's a brilliant story. And I think the book just really deepens the the themes and the ideas in there but um i think as you were saying sort of Adam, it's, it's awkward there's no easy answers it is just mm. uh yeah. they've got to do the best they can from it mm-hmm. i'm not sure the book deepens it in my opinion i uh it, it, it as much as other target books which i haven't read for the last few decades but i i kind of felt it, it achieved the ambition of a 1970s target book do you know which is to pretty much put out the script and what was there. I thought it had some interesting bits in it, but it, it didn't, I, I, it could have been twice the size or whatever. I still think this, this two-parter could even be in a three-parter if they wanted mm-hmm. to really, you know, let's have a whole season of like Torchwood style Zygon invasion. Um, but I, I, I didn't think it kind of went massively deep, but then, as you know, I'm not a big reader, so you guys <laughs> probably spotted more. Yeah, well, I, I definitely agree with you on that to an extent. Um, I think there are there are two main areas that it did improve on uh, and deepen, in my opinion. And that was one, the characterization of Bonnie. It gave her a much more mm-hmm. fleshed out backstory, which we didn't get. Uh, and two, it it enhanced the climax in a very kind of subtle way. Um, both of these are things are Clara oriented, so of course I'm going to latch onto them and <laughs> go into them. Uh, but yeah, definitely the Bonnie thing. Um, which, like in the uh, in the episode, she takes Clara's form, and we assume that she's taking Clara's form for the express purpose of infiltrating unit and whatnot. Uh, but they kind of reframe it here in this, or Peter reframed it in this novelization uh, as she was always Clara's doppelganger um, from the moment she hatched. She was Clara's. For simile, you know, because they they established that uh, all of these Zygon refugees are originally from Great Britain and they copied various people from Great Britain and then went on to live across the world um, and integrate. Um, and obviously this particular version uh, took Clara's form. Um, and it was interesting because it used that background knowledge, uh, you know, Clara's surface memories and obviously this connection with someone who was also a copy of Danny to then inform her decision and her radicalization instead of it being the other way around you know she wasn't already radicalized and then went and took Clara's form instead that kind of informed her kind of political journey I guess and her emotional journey as well um so it was interesting the way they reframed that and the way they added that backstory yeah and I think all of that was really interesting that all all the Zygons and and they're not which I'm not sure is clear in the TV story. They're not all Zygons from space. They've all been hatched on Earth, so they mm-hmm. are mm. native Earthlings. Right. Uh, that they've all been hatched by a, Sar- a Scarison, uh, which you don't get to see. Uh, which is yeah, <laughs> uh, which is disappointing because I, lo- I love the Scarison. Um, and then yeah, like you say, they they were all sort of hatched in London, and they all took the form of Londoners. And then were there's a uh, is it twenty million of them, and then and then spread across the world. And you learn they're only like 18 months old as well. So they're children, really, that they've just, and then they just, they sort of achieve consciousness kind of on their way to their new destinations. 
so all of that I felt really deepened it that they they're total innocence and they just have to learn how to cope in a totally new environment where they're marked out as different because they're because they're British. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I think because one of the most interesting bits about that backstory for me is when they arrive in Truth or Consequences, uh, or Truth and Con- I can't remember. Um, and they get basically get a note from the Zygon High Command that goes, "Your Zygons, don't tell anyone that. Don't show it. Uh, don't call us. We might call you." And that's just it. There's no, and you really get a sense that they've been abandoned, just like left to fend by themselves. And I think that taps into something else I really like about what this particular novelization does. Almost from its first or second page, it's this constant sense of. The doctor didn't give enough time and resources for people to really sort this out, like mm. it, you know, it, it, which is, in some ways, what and what I also like about this, it kind of taps into a theme about the whole Capaldi era, I think, which is mm. the limits of what the doctor can do, and you know, what he does is, you know, it's it's right there in uh, uh, the Doctor Falls, you know, what he does is buy people a little more time, a little more life. And here it's a massively complicated situation. And it doesn't say, you know, he did the wrong thing, but there's constant emphasize that he basically said, you've got a couple of hours to make, you know, what does he call it? The, the perfect peace treaty. And they're like, that wasn't enough. That isn't enough, you know, and even not knowing you as, if you're human as Igon actually doesn't really help. It helped at the time, yeah. but it doesn't help for later situations. And I really like that. It was, it, you know, it doesn't, say what he did was wrong but it does say that more needed to happen i i really appreciate that i thought it was really interesting yeah and it, it kind of continues on thematically uh not just in terms of the era but this series in particular it's very mm. much about the doctor running away whether consciously or not from uh, the consequences in some ways you know you have the uh the through line with uh, a shielder slash lady me where you know you see him save the village in uh, the girl who died and then obviously uh you the next episode it's looking at the person he's created unwittingly um and the kind of ripple effects from that and and there's a lovely line at the end of uh the woman who lived where uh you know they talk about him being the one who comes for the battle and flees from the fallout and it, this kind of continues from that really nicely um and i do really appreciate i, I love it when the doc when doctor who does like these kind of sequels uh to previous stories you know like you have a uh, in two, series one you have the long game and then you have um bad wolf and parting of the ways and that's kind of showing how the doctor tidied up the situation but he didn't really leave people with the tools to deal with the long-term consequences and the long-term fallout um and this is very similar to that because obviously it's dealing with this massive fallout of the day of the doctor um and i think that was really good that they did kind of go back and address that and the political implications of that um you know you, you can I, I have nitpicks with the, with the climax of this episode um, and the resolution of it. But in terms of, you know, them going out to tackle this and especially this novelization deepening the implications and um, I think really helping flesh Bonnie out more as a character rather than just an, as an avatar for this radicalized sprinter group is really good. It, it really helped giving her that backstory. Yeah, I completely agree there. Like you say, the, I think the Doctor's always done that, hasn't he? He's always sort of uh, fomented a revolution or brought down a government or something and then not stayed around for the consequences and, and this time having to face them. And it's contemporary Earth as well, so it's it's much more understandable for, for us. And then the what's really deepened in the book as well is is the sort of the 
the refugee parallels and asylum seekers and things like that when Kate goes to Truth or Consequences and there's a sign saying no dogs and no British and everything. Um, it's it's just kind of a quite throwaway on the on the screen, I think, that you see she sees that sign and then moves on, but it really goes into why that happened in the book and the ramifications of it. And um, yeah, I guess you I suppose you particularly hope that kids watching that will will understand what Peter Harness is trying to say and and you know really question the narratives that maybe they're seeing on social media and the news from the government and right-wing news sources and maybe their parents and things. Yeah, it is interesting the way we're watching this when our government is putting people on barges this week. So it's not mm. it's not Zigella, it's not Zigella, it's Suella. So yeah. a little bit of politics for you. <laughs> I mean, I think it is one of those things, I think some of the criticisms that have come from this episode is almost inevitably because allegories or metaphors in science fiction they go so far mm-hmm. but they it's like um to go on this tiny bit of a tangent bear with me i promise i'm, I'm gonna make a point here i've for some insane reason decided to read through all of the super age x-men series um which don't do that they're very bad comics but i was <laughs> but i got me thinking a bit about you know the x-men metaphor or, or what people have used it for and you know it's you know, people, <laughs> this is a slightly weird idea that people like Stanley used to go, oh, yeah, I meant it to be about civil rights, um, even if the timings don't actually work out on that. And he's like, you know, Charles Xavier is like Martin Luther King and Magneto is like Malcolm X. Now, my American history isn't brilliant, but I don't think Malcolm X ever took over a small nation and attempted to blow it up or do anything like that. You know, it, 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 it's, it's, and then later on, you know, when you get the Brian Singer films and, you know, being a mutant is, is paralleled in some ways with, um, you know, being gay because you, you have in, in the second film, you have like Bobby uh, Iceman coming out to his to his parents as a mutant. And it's got that the best line, I think, in the whole franchise was, have you tried not being a mutant? Um, <laughs> and that, you know, and that's that works at the time. But then you're like, well, you know, say uh, mutants as a queer metaphor works up to the point where you go, well, why don't you have any gay X-Men? Uh, and there are now in the books, yeah, there are now, um, and like as a civil rights movement, though, why don't you have any black X-Men? And there weren't until Storm in 1974, uh, you know, 11 years after the first book. And it, you know, at the end of the day, you can use something like X-Men for to be about discrimination, but it's not really a stand-in for any one group it's about discrimination against people who can read your mind and destroy buildings with their eyes and you kind of have to accept that like it's only going to go so far as a thing i think that's true with the zygons in this like you know you 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 know obviously you know there are they are they they are you know literal refugees but they are refugees who are also uh shape-shifting aliens and that's it it go, and you know, obviously, a lot of imagery is used. Like, like there's dro- you know, drones, drone pilot, drone raids. Um, they've all gone off to a camp in a in a fictionalized. What's the what's the fictionalized country in this cord? Uh, I'm trying to, to remember. Turkmenistan or something like yeah. that. It it was originally supposed to be Azerbaijan, uh, but they obviously decided to create a fictional <laughs> one, less baggage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So they go off to a camp to be. You know, Trey. You know, he uses a lot, of, and I think you know, I I love this story, but I understand some of the criticisms of it. But at the end of the, uh, also, you have to just go, okay, the Zygons are refugees, but they're not stand-ins for you know, like 
the people our government treats appallingly, or they they only are up to a, up to a point, maybe. Yes, I I think that's a really I think you've articulated it well in that, you know, if you do on the nose stuff all the time, it's really mm. annoying, and doesn't get doesn't get the way you need it to go. And if you do allegory forever and ever and ever, you know, it starts missing things because it's not right. I think it does enough to make you think about. You know, it's not. There was one line in it. Obviously, my memory is just horrific. But there's one line where the I think the the police officer stroke Zygon in Truth or Consequences is talking about um, they were monsters or something. And I thought, is that is that them saying the British became monsters or the Zygons became monsters? And the, and to me, it's either that's my terrible understanding of things or it's this continual inversion continual inversion of the allegory who is it and that's the whole point is that Mm -hmm. war never works get around a table to talk but we still do it anyway um and you know none of these things are easy at all and just involve momentary moments of peace Fucking hell, this is pretty deep for. A, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it says a lot about the episode that it prompts these questions, because um, not every Doctor episode has that level of uh, political context. And um, yeah, I mean, I think you know, in terms of when I was talking about being cool on the episode, um, I mean, I, I still love it. Like, I'd still give a solid seven, eight out of ten. But uh, I, I just meant in terms of, I think. You know, we, we, we often talk about the speech, you know, because Peter's mm. performance is incredible at the end and it is a very well written speech. Um, mm. But I think something that, that has that I've discussed a lot with, you know, with fellow fans and, and um, is that that there, there's kind of a that there's certain lines in it that just feel you know, but, but Bonnie, it, it kind of taps into this very common trope when it comes to writing uh, stories where you have a, a sympathetic uh, villain, you know, who who, who has a uh, a justifiable, well, not justifiable, but you you understand where they're coming from, their political perspective. Um, you know, in terms of Bonnie's life, she has been treated like 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 dirt. She says they've been treated like cattle. And, uh, you know, she, she says that line, and the doctor's like, well, I don't have a tailor, and my TARDIS doesn't always work. And you know, they do lampshade it. She says those things don't equate. And he's saying, you know, you're throwing a tantrum. But at the same time, it kind of feels like, to me, uh, in hindsight, belittling this kind of wider, deeper issue in a very kind of condescending mm. way. And I I, I I, get what they're going for there, you know, because uh, mm-hmm. the doctor's kind of reprimanding her for taking this violent path. But like I said, this is quite a common trope where you have a sympathetic a villain or someone wants to make a villain's perspective more nuanced you know rather than oh I'm just evil I'm just going to blow everyone up because I hate people you know they, they're trying to give them a, a, a understandable motivation or an understandable uh trying to source that kind of antagonism from something uh, real and and honest and understandable but you know because their their methods of violence um that's kind of focused on more than mm. the actual source of the problem. You know, uh, I, I don't really know how to quite articulate that, but the problem with the episode uh, as it aired is that I, it kind of just feels like he's like, okay, we, we've shut everything down. She's not going to kill everyone anymore. She's not going to start war. Uh, and then we're kind of, the status quo is just reset again. 
we haven't dealt mm. with the fundamental issues here. We haven't dealt with what's actually what actually caused this splinter group to rise up in the first place, you know. Um, how are the Zygons' lives going to be better now? Are they still assimilating? You know, it, it raises all these questions and then it kind of puts them to bed again. And I like that. Sorry, sorry, Ruth. I like that point a lot. It's just, isn't that life though? Doesn't that, do, do, do we ever really deal with any of these problems like, I don't know, um, immigration or global warming or, or anything in real life that is fully sort of set? Would you, do, you, do you know? I think is that is that um, something it's also trying to say is we you can only get so far and have a moment of peace and then something else will come along. Um, forgive me for interrupting, but I, I sort of... I totally, I totally get yeah. what you're saying, but what I'm saying is that it doesn't fundamentally... Ch- I, I, I will say that something that this uh, novelization makes clearer is that they renegotiate a new ceasefire. So there is this implication that yes, things are going to change. Uh, I don't think that was as kind of established in the episode itself. It kind of felt like uh, the the Zygons do have legitimate issues that they're, I mean, granted the person raising it isn't the best person to be raising it, but they do have legitimate problems, legitimate grievances, systemic issues. And they're kind of, the doctor's kind of like, well, we've shut down the immediate, we've put this fire out but we're not going to deal with the fundamental issue <laughs> that is still happening here. Um, so I do like that there's a bit more focus in the end of this novelization of there's actually going to be a new ceasefire. There's going to be a, there's going to, it, it leaves things on an open end. Like you don't know exactly what those changes are going to be. And, you know, you can't expect the episode to fully go into that because it's just too big in terms of the implications, both for the the political implications and also for the, the Doctor Who universe, you know, they can't break down what they're going to do. Um, but that that's still kind of a bit of contention I have with the episode, um, is this kind of idea of this radicalised splinter group having these issues and then they're kind of neutralised and then what what what's actually changed, you know? Yeah. That, that's Good what man. I was getting at. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, I, I agree. It's uh, It is one of those tro- tropes that it's in a lot of things I really like and it, you you know, you kind of either grit your teeth and, and get through it. Or I think it was, yeah, Falcon and Winter Soldier that wasn't a great yeah. show. It wasn't a great show anyway. And I stopped by the third episode because I think that's when, you know, the actually quite sympathetic villain just blew something up for no reason. Well, I was that, like, that's, a, uh, that's what I was thinking about. Yeah. 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 And I will say this handles it better. But no, I agree that I, I totally agree. Like I said, it's nice that there is that line about they're going to renegotiate. And, but I also think uh, Colin's right in the sense that, I think there's this thing of like it you never get it perfect you're always having to go back and work on it and there's, there's no guarantees it's ever going to work but yeah no that there are lines in that Sorry, speech Brexit. That's, Brexit. Was that? <laughs> <laughs> that's never going to work though um <laughs> but yeah yeah and that is yeah that line where the doctor's a bit dismissive right because right at the start you know he goes it doesn't uh, yeah that always kind of I mean, I did find interesting enough. I I, lo- I do love that speech when uh, Peter's performing it. I found it didn't work quite so well for me in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, maybe because it's the performance it's, is really what makes it. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. No, one hundred percent. And I was just a bit like, oh, this is okay. It also cut out one of my favorite moments in it, or at least I think it did. I thought I just read through it so quickly where he goes, where he goes to Bonnie. Oh, what what are they going to do to you? What are they going to do to the troublemakers? And that always, mm-hmm. I always like that because, you know, in a long history of revolution, the people actually often start revolutions or get things goes, you know, the troublemakers, they don't always survive 
uh, long after revolution successful revolutions mm-hmm. it's you know because they're troublemakers and i always like that i always like that on the tv version because for so, if, at least for me I, I don't know if anyone else ever had, had this interpretation but i always kind of thought that's the doctor drawing parallels with himself because mm-hmm. he is a troublemaker he comes along he kicks revolutions off, but he doesn't stick around. And he doesn't stick around because he, you know, because he's adopted, he likes to go off and explore. But there's also a sense of maybe part of him knows he wouldn't do that well after a revolution because he is too much of a troublemaker. He's not a complete finisher, you know. No. It's like mm-hmm. one of those psychology things at work. So, you know, there's someone that comes in, delivers the strategy, da 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 da, off you go. And then everyone else has to sort it out. He's not a complete finisher as a character type. Um, uh, and that now that you've said all that, I'm thinking, well, hang on a minute, that's kind of everything. <laughs> it's so bad. <laughs> In terms of that, you're saying about you know it's never fully resolved and everything. I think the bit of the TV story I didn't like was when the Doctor says, "Well, we've done this 15 times before." Yeah. Because I kind of felt that it undercut everything when you know at the start, and it's like this is the nightmare scenario, but it's like it's the nightmare scenario again, and we know exactly how to resolve it uh, or some variation i think it's isn't it more within the context of the negotiation like he took 15 times to convince bonnie to change her mind rather than this whole thing has happened 15 times because it's within the black archive which has the memory resetter so he's saying that he's been they've been having to go through this discussion again and again and again until he gets the result he needs right um, ah. I think that's what he's actually because because they say there's there's a bit just before the climax scene, uh, the speech where the doctor talks about needing to use his words to change minds, and I think the implication there is that, and I I, I actually quite like that uh, line in the context of he knew he he didn't get it right the first time and he had to do it again and again and again. He had to find just the right words. To, to tip the scale um, and to get through to Bonnie. Um, I think that's what that particular uh, uh, line meant. Rather than the whole thing has happened 15 times, I think it meant I, yeah. the Black Archive discussion was going over and over and over and again. I um, completely misunderstood that. I thought there'd been 15, <laughs> uh, like, 15 revolutions. Previous. Um, like, <laughs> I thought the missing was... cycle inversions. <laughs> every other story, uh, unseen adventures of the Doctor coming back to deal with another uh, splinter group of the Zygons. I feel really <laughs> stupid now. I might, I might edit that out. But I think it's a beautiful point there that I can't now. That's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> I always thought he was joking, to be honest. That was like, I thought it was just, you know, the it Doctor. Could be that too. But no, that I actually quite like that the idea that he's just resetting the conversation over and over again until he gets what mm-hmm. he wants. So that 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 fits uh, just as well. And I, I kind of like that because it makes the doctor more valuable. Like he didn't just have this speech in his back pocket. <laughs> like he was probably <laughs> workshopping it each time. Um, I, I also um, something I really do appreciate that Harness added is that you have this line, obviously, uh, because Clara is very removed from this episode. Clara herself, you've got lots of Jenna Coleman, you've got lots of Bonnie, uh, but Clara herself is kind of removed from this story for a lot of it. And that's quite a recurring theme in uh, series nine. Um, After centering her so much in series eight, you know, which is very grounded in her perspective, her character development, they kind of take a step back in series nine. Um, I've always kind of seen it as like... um, you know, series seven is Clara from the Doctor's perspective. Series eight is the Doctor from Clara's perspective. And then we kind of flip back to the Doctor's perspective, series nine, because it's very centred on his 
uh, paranoia and fear around losing her. Um, and there's a recurring theme in this series of removing Clara's agency and her having to fight to reclaim it. So in the first uh, two episodes, she's trapped in the Dalek um, and she's having to speak through that. Uh, and um, and then she's kind of this uh, uh, absent figure in The Woman Who Lived, where she kind of haunts the narrative with Lady Me and the Doctor, uh, but she's not actively part of it until the last couple of minutes. And then this episode, obviously, she's trapped in a Zygon pond for most of it. And you have this kind of push and pull of her asserting her agency uh, through getting back at Bonnie, you know, using her ingenuity to try and help the Doctor through it from this limited perspective. But uh, the problem is there was never really a satisfying payoff in the climax uh, to that. She's very kind of, she's just kind of standing there during the scene itself. And then you have the Doctor saying this line of, uh, I was going to destroy my own planet, uh, but I, I changed my mind. And Bonnie said, you know what what happened the same thing that happened to you i let clara oswald get inside my head the problem is they never really show that in the episode they don't show uh clara having any kind of i don't know ideological or philosophical effect on bonnie they have this fun kind of push and pull but they don't show them connecting emotionally which i think would have made the climax stronger as seen in the episode because you're actually seeing right. How did Clara get inside her head? You know, how, how did she get, get inside her head on that level? So something Harness adds to the climax in this episode is this bit of Clara perspective of her trying to connect to Bonnie. And and you, that's a lot clearer in the, uh, in the novelization than the episode itself. And I think it makes that line work a lot better um, because you're, she's not just taking on Clara's, um, you know, physical appearance. She's actually taking on her memories, her emotions, and uh, maybe a bit of her philosophy as well. And um, I think, you know, it would have been, the episode would have been stronger if they'd done that and given Clara a bit more to do in that climax for that line to have that payoff. Definitely. Like that. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, can I just say, I was reading this whole novel expecting a Dimensions in Time reference because. <laughs> I know that uh, Harness had one in, in the script at some point, and I was like, he'll definitely put it back in for the Target novelization. <laughs> Nothing, no mention of Big Ron whatsoever. So I was, I was oh, a little yeah, disappointed yeah. in that. But presumably, there there is a Big Ron Zygon somewhere out there because they <laughs> they were all hatched in London and they all took a uh, a form. So we learn a, quite a bit more about Osgood in this one as well, which is interesting that that Peter Harness confirms that she is the daughter of Osgood from the demons, mm. which it's never been, I think, confirmed before. Mm. And in some of the big Finnish unit plays, they sort of skirt around it and hint at it. But then immediately by saying that, they, they uh, he has to point out that both she and Kate are Nepal babies because they both got the uh, they both got their unit positions from from one of their parents, and then one of the early drafts of the script had a General Bambera as well, who was oh. in charge of unit forces in another country. So oh. presumably oh. that was. Oh, Everyone in unit is just descended from the same like <laughs> yeah, like a hereditary uh, peerage sort of thing. Yeah, you just. Uh... I mean that that's very British, isn't it? So. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Do you imagine if Bambera just if Bambera just popped up for like a minute and went and looked just like looked at them all just fucking about and making a mess (laughs) everything and just went shame. 
<laughs> Angela Bruce is still working as an actress. There's no reason they couldn't get her in. I keep saying they, this. They I would. Should. I would. They absolutely mm-hmm. should. Love her. Just be. Yeah, she does. Yeah, she right. She doesn't have to do much. Just come in one one scene. Give them that look that she gives people in Battlefield, and <laughs> exactly. we'd, we'd be happy. To be honest. <laughs> uh, thank you for listening to the Battlefield podcast. <laughs> <laughs> But I did like the background about Osgood meeting the third and fourth doctors at unique picnics that her, her dad took mm. her to. And then it's, it's quite meta, isn't it? She talks about um, reminding her of BBC Two tea time repeats, which um, I guess probably she's about the same age as me. And that was Planet of the Daleks and uh, the Sea Devils getting sort of uh, six o'clock tea time repeats, I think, when I was a teenager. So that was quite cool. I've always really liked Osgood's whole kind of arc throughout her few appearances um you know i love the fact the last thing the doctor says to her on screen is i'm a very big fan and then i, I think that's lovely and i mean this is why i've actually got to think i i, I think osgood's brilliant i but i don't want her to be on the, i think she's had enough exactly. tv appearances you know yeah i think sometimes it's that fan instinct to keep getting a character back even when they've kind of done everything they can and then when the character does come back it's disappointing. Uh, I'm yeah. kind of side eyeing Captain Jack Please. here when they. <laughs> well, that's very um, disappointing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. maybe our returning character's final scene should just be an, a voicemail message. I don't know. Maybe that's <laughs> what people <laughs> want. But yeah, she's. It, I think she's she's great, and I I love. I always really love, in particular in this story, the um, you know, their refusal to say whether they're human or Zygon. And love it. and the, the the doctor desperate to know, but just like no, because it's you don't get to know just because you're the doctor essentially. And she, mm-hmm. I, I, and yeah, she kind of she's she has a thought about him. Oh, he's quite old fashioned in his way of thinking. Oh, it's something mm-hmm. like I can't quite remember that, but it, I really like that. Just that slight like, yeah, she's a fan of his, but she she she's she sees him. She sees him. Yeah, it, it gives her a nice little arc because obviously in the day of the Doctor, she's I don't want to say a caricature, but she's she's very much mm. the the fan girl, you know, uh, yeah. kind of gushing over the Doctor, uh, very kind of nervous and ditzy, and um, I, I like this kind of maturity that she's gone through in her her appearances, and it, it does feel like this is a nice kind of cap off, especially because you know like it it is a, a spiritual sequel to the day of the or or no a literal mm. sequel to the day of the Doctor, um so it, it, I really do appreciate how this episode ties up so many different threads, I mean it very much feels like um you know especially as it's Clara's last season it felt like a really good way to tie up a lot of those loose ends that were lingering from that story. Um, and it does feel like the Capaldi era kind of really ties everything that the Day of the Doctor started off together bit by bit. Uh, and, you know, it's not fully tied up and really until the Doctor falls, but, you know, I really like how they addressed it here. And it, it does feel like Osgood had a really nice, neat little arc. And um, I definitely like her maturity in this this story. And, and she's yeah. a bit more willing to kind of, I don't know, fondly tease the Doctor and, and, and be a bit more critical, which is nice. Yeah, it's interesting because we've got her first appearance novelised by Stephen Moffat in the Day of the Doctor target book, and then here as well. And like you say, there is a real evolution from her being much more kind of innocent and, uh, yeah, kind of socially awkward, like you say, in, in, in that first one, to the more sort of jaded, experienced and, and very wise, I think, character in this one as well. And and you get obviously get point of view in in both books as well, and even the point of view bits in this one, you 
you don't get to know whether she's a zygon or a human, which I thought going into it, they might reveal in the, uh, you know, in, in the book that, but not the other characters get to find out. Um, but we don't. Right. But that, that, I'm glad. I'm glad. Because mm. that's the whole point. That's the whole point in when, if they, if this is trying to talk about multiculturalism and integration and, you know, all of these things is that on one level, you know, shouldn't matter that you don't need to know. Mm-hmm. And I, it was, it was odd in a way that the doctor kept asking Osgood, Osgood this, cause he mm-hmm. should know better. He should know better, he should, yeah. but he, but he does know better. He, I think he does know better. It's just like Osgood just happened to be with the doctor for, you know, 60 minutes of the 90 minutes so that's the only person she can really have that conversation and with I, I do think it's also probably a bit of like he, he he says it's for some because it's important but he's probably just curious he, he's just mm. he's just the kind of character that just has yeah. to know yeah i think that's really what it comes down to more than anything definitely yeah he's just he's just very nosy I think exactly. is, is, is what it goes. Yeah, no, def- it definitely. And I think there's something very Moffat as well about the like this thing about Osgood. In some ways, they become an idea. Mm. You know, like yeah, that they're 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 living people, or humans or zygons, but they're also they also represent something greater. They become an idea. In my, and it's interesting when you think a lot of Moffat's tenure, particularly in the Capaldi era, is about the 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 Doctor trying to live up to the idea of the Doctor as well and i just i just find that an interesting um interesting tie-in well it's nice because it again it ties really thematically well into series nine because and, and the capable mm. era as in general as you say in the moffat era in general but uh in series nine you know you've got this arc for this arc of clara becoming the doctor uh in terms of taking his narrative role uh you know not not just not just becoming the doctor in terms of doing doctorous things or saying doctorous lines but actively becoming her own equivalent her own version of the doctor and asserting her agency over that um because obviously that's what face the raven heaven sent and hell bent is all about it's all about this idea of yes clara's human but why can't she be the doctor you know why can't she do these things there, there, there's limitless possibilities and and that's her ending on the show and it, it kind of osgood's kind of a, a, a microcosm of that kind of idea of of uh, i mean you you can't really remove the fact that a lot of the kind of key players in series nine especially are women and um especially as this is leading up to paving the way for jodie whittaker's casting it feels like moffat is really preparing the ground of why can't you know why can't the master be missy why can't uh you know and you have have lady me who who questions the doctor and takes on her own title as me uh and that being a promise that she keeps or or some sort of reminder for her and then you have osgood being the embodiment of the peace and then you have clara uh becoming the doctor um so yeah it, it it ties in really well thematically with that season and and with the era as a whole yeah, I was just thinking the husbands of River Song, where River's yeah. got the TARDIS. That's the, mm-hmm. almost mm-hmm. the most doctory. Yeah, it's a great point. Is that all of these things? Uh, it's building up to much uh, the Jodie Whittaker era in a sense. It's you know the, the path has been laid. There's so many good jokes in this. I love the jokes. I just think <laughs> the. Um, you know they they crash they they crash land uh, out of the parachutes, and he just goes any questions? 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, why you've got a Union Jack? It's like camouflage. <laughs> I just love it. I, I love uh, I love I'm old enough to be your messiah. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> I, think, I think I actually used that in a meeting the other day. Uh, or not in a meeting, but in a conversation. Do you think it's an in-joke when, when they go back to Clara's flat and she gets a voicemail from her auntie saying that... Uh, uh, that Clara's dad isn't himself anymore about him being recast. I'd never thought of that. That's so funny. I hope so. I mean, that was actually a deleted scene that they filmed. Um, there's quite a lot of deleted scenes that were integrated into this uh, story, which is nice. Because um, obviously they they shot them and they just didn't make it to the edit. Um, no, I, yeah, I, I hope that's an in-joke. Because that, that was very jarring, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. He aged like ten years and like five years, or oh god, yeah. It it happens once you reach a certain age. To be fair, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and we learn that Jimi Hendrix is a f- former companion of the Doctor, and I guess it's <laughs> got to be the twelfth Doctor with the electric guitars, and it? it's mm-hmm. got to be a, a, an unseen adventure or a series of unseen adventures. Maybe when Peter Capaldi finally signs up for Big Finish, we can, uh, <laughs> we can see those. That'd be so good. I would actually listen to them. <laughs> <laughs> As opposed to just buy them. Uh, <laughs> hey, R- Ruth, you were telling us there's a, l- a lot of deleted scenes or alternative versions or pre-versions of that. And I'm, I'm, I'd be very interested to hear what they okay, yes. are. Uh, so uh, basically... Um, for those who aren't aware, there's a, a series of books called uh, The Complete History. Mm-hmm. Um, and they basically break down the, the production of, of different Doctor Who episodes. Um, they're really, really interesting reads. Um, you know, they include uh, some wild ideas, um, especially for this story. Because uh, I remember I got into a conversation with some friends about the original... I, I, I'm still not 100% clear whether this was the original pitch or whether this was just the very, very early preliminary ideas phase. Um, uh, and I actually got into an exchange with Vitanas on Twitter about this um, because, you know, we were talking about some of the absolute insane stuff that is in this, these kind of... Uh, I, I can't even... I, I can't tell you how many times I have read through this preliminary, this this early ideas phase and I still can't make sense of it. I still couldn't tell you what the actual plot of it was. Uh, it didn't resemble the episode very much. Uh, but there's some very unusual things in it. Like um, <laughs> uh, Courtney Woods has a big role. Uh, you know, she was in Killed the Moon in, in Series 8 mm. a lot. Um, but, I, I mean, I... I, I <laughs> I can't I can't even make sense of the context of this uh and I would really love to have a chat with Peter about you know where these ideas came from and how this came to be in this book because uh it says here for example I've got the book open with me um he also wanted to include elements which could grab the attention of younger viewers. So set the Zygon secret base at a school, which obviously was on the episode, um, and made several of the key Zygon characters young- youngsters. One of these would be Courtney Woods, a prominent character from Kill the Moon, uh, who Harness wanted to develop, to develop further under the alias of Blinovich. Mm. <laughs> an abandoned storyline from an earlier episode to scare mm-hmm. the adults uh, to scare the adults harness put in elements such as unit troops ordered to open fire on zygons who had taken the form of their relatives yep that was in the series um so actually i tell you what this uh novelization made 
a lot of things make a lot more sense in this uh, complete history because um, I was never very clear in the episode about this idea of um, uh, the Zygons populating the world being for similes of people from London and the UK. Uh, mm. So I assume this Courtney Woods thing would be someone who'd taken Courtney Woods' form and not Courtney, Courtney Woods just randomly renaming herself to Blinovich and then getting involved <laughs> in espionage. Because that's what it came across like. She's just going around, like, travelling the world, doing all these secret missions. And I, I was like, why is Courtney doing this? She's like she's like 15. Uh, and like the, and the, the Danny Pink thing as well uh, is mentioned here about the Bonnie and Clyde Danny uh, having a facsimile and um, again it, it, out of context because again this is lacking very crucial context uh, I was like well, what, what's Danny doing in this story uh, where did he come from um, but I really like how kind of tying back into the uh, novelization a bit more is they do introduce this character called Clyde um, who is Bonnie's partner and uh, uh, I like how they follow the timeline of Danny dying and that kind of um, when Danny died in the timeline his facsimile Clyde uh, his Zygon equivalent also died really a part of him died um, which is explored a lot more in the novelization and um, it's again touched on in this complete history um, I tell you what uh, I might need to like properly go back and sift through some of this to actually because I can throw random sound bites at you like something about baby farms uh, and uh, the president of Russia and America having a child together um, and various things like that, but I would have to revisit the context of them. <laughs> yeah, those definitely need context. Uh... Um, it's, I mean, Harness always seems to come up with these mad ideas. That don't, mm-hmm. Like uh, Pyramid at the End of the World, I think, was supposed to feature Prime Minister Jeremy Corbyn and Donald <laughs> Trump, but Donald Trump gets uh, gets, I think, strangled by his own hair? And I'm not 100% on, I think I heard that. I mean, I haven't, that's just a rumor. And I I think he's also, I've also seen artists go, occasionally go, what? No, I never, I never said I was going to do that. So, but he definitely, he he thinks big. I'll give him that. He He always, I too does. Of course, the, the, the thing there about Clara, like how Bonnie's life mirroring Clara's a bit in that they both lost Danny. Mm. That there's the prominent scene for them when they get to know each other is in a diner as well, which then becomes Clara's. I don't know. Yeah, I was wondering if Clara saying. was going to show up then, and when they went, when they said the diner in the desert, um, the chapter was called the diner in the desert. Yeah, it seemed, it seemed like it was sort of a nod to the fact that that's the TARDIS um, exterior, isn't it? That, mm-hmm. that Clara eventually. Yeah, gets. I mean that's interesting because uh, they they do establish that. Uh, the diner in as seen in uh, uh, the Impossible Astronaut is implied to maybe be the same diner. Um, so who knows? Maybe she uh, she was just uh, in the background there. You know, a future version. It's one diner. It's in Cardiff and everything. <laughs> yeah, it's shut down now, which is very oh, sad. Oh no. It's because the Doctor Who exhibition is shut down, so no one. Yeah, I think that's probably why. <laughs> Literally no reason to visit Cardiff anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So we also get the origin story of the Doctor's question mark collars that he started wearing in (laughs) season 18, which was unexpected. And this is that that he he got them from the magician, I don't know how to pronounce this, Mescaline or Mescaline, who I looked up and was a stage magician 
and also the inventor of the pay toilet. But I couldn't find any reference to him wearing uh, shirts that had question marks on the collars. So, I, yeah, I wasn't quite sure if, if that was something he was famous for, but I couldn't find anything online about it. And we said the line about the question mark pants. Yeah. I'm reading through this and I still still do not for the life of me know what a baby farm is. I assume it's probably <laughs> I assume it's probably a daikon hatchery. Yeah. Uh but mm. it's just never made very clear in this complete history. And Courtney Woods is operating it. Uh can you see my confusion having not had the context offered by this novel? I, I was wondering why Courtney Woods was farming babies and it was very confusing. Um but no, I I to be honest, this could have its its own podcast. I don't want to derail it from the uh, from the uh, uh, novelization a bit too much. But I mean, like I said, the 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 main ideas from this that went into the uh, the the complete history was the the Danny stuff um, and the Clara the Bonnie backstory stuff. Cool. I I was just wondering if they were uh, free range babies or battery farmed. I assume battery farms. Is that, I mean, is that, how would you describe Zygon hatcheries? Is, do they are they free range? I don't know enough about how Zygon hatcheries work. <laughs> I'm sad that we didn't get a baby Zygon now because the baby sea devil in the in the trailer for season nine was so cute. I feel like uh, you know there's a missed opportunity <laughs> for for toys and things there, isn't there? To have a have a baby Zygon. You've got enough toys, Mark. <laughs> Mel maybe say that. Yeah. Maybe baby Zygon, you know, it's like baby Yoda, isn't it? Could it really uh you know opened up a new I think a like a baby Zygon would be nightmare fuel, to be honest. How, uh, <laughs> just imagining one of those little like red pods with a baby's face is, is giving me giving me the creeps. I'm gonna have nightmares about that now. Um, I, you know, I remember something. I, I really should have read through this before we, uh, properly, because I, I haven't read through this in a while. But I think there was something about uh, caterpillars. Maybe they're they're like little uh, baby zygons are like little caterpillars, uh, which would be a bit weird. But you know, that would be uh, quite interesting. Uh, anyway, <laughs> not to go on too much of a tangent. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it if 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 this uh, if this uh, complete history tells you one thing um i again i it's a shame i i didn't read through this again before we uh started the podcast because uh it, it's just very interesting to see the sheer kind of creativity that peter harness has uh and uh like we were saying before the ideas don't always cohere in quite you know they don't it can be a bit messy sometimes um but he he's never not ambitious um and uh you have to whatever uh fault you might find i mean kill the moon's a good example like i i love that episode i know it's very controversial uh i love it to bits i love the the moon is the neg idea i love the character conflict i love the atmosphere of it i i just think it it's a brilliant episode um but you can still i've seen people say that it was an accidental abortion allegory and of course it doesn't work as that it was never intended to be no. that but mm. i see why people read into it mm-hmm. because you have these three women and the doctor kind of putting this choice on them um and and people have criticized it as the pro-life doctor who story which is it's very obviously not because that was never what it was intended to be um but you can see because he throws around such big ideas, he doesn't 
you know, there's there's sometimes implications that weren't intended, and you can pick apart certain political implications of his episodes, um, and even like practical implications, like the ending of that episode where uh, suddenly this newborn uh, creature has laid an egg that is like ten times its size. <laughs> oh, it's, it's uh, space egg. It's a space egg. Space egg. Yeah, yeah space egg. Yeah. Thing is, it does operate on its own log- series, its own plane of logic, and it's one of those things where I don't care if it doesn't mm. make sense. Oh, completely, I completely. It, it, it tells a good story, and it's a little bit different, I think, with the Zygon inversion slash invasion, where there is a little bit more of an obvious intended allegory going on. So mm. you can be a bit more. I, I love that ana- analysis. I think that's exactly right. It's the same I feel about Kill the Moon. Is that if you want hard sci-fi. You watch the peripheral, watch Battlestar Galactica, watch mm-hmm. the Expanse. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, if you want incoherent fantasy that's fun and that has some good things to say and some good ideas floating around in there, then then keep watching Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. And I, I like you know, uh, like Harness does bring up all these really great ideas, like the choice in Kill the Moon. I mean, the choice, not you know uh, anything more than that. And, and you can think, oh. That means, uh, you know, pro-life, etc. Or maybe it doesn't. It, but it, it doesn't. It doesn't go deep enough to say, you know, this. This is what. Uh, this is what a character thinks, or this is what, um, you know, the storyteller is saying. It's just say it just happens to be like that, and you can take it that way. And whereas the Zygon invasion inversion does a lot of that around, you know. Uh, refugees, immigration, multiculturalism. It throws it all out there. It's not entirely coherent, but I don't think it's a mess. And I don't think it's incoherent. I just think it leaves you lots to think about. Uh, And that's why I really love it. It's Doctor Who with something to say. And that's why I like In the Forest of the Night as well. So... Mm. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting because I, I definitely agree. I, I, I probably, Incoherent wasn't really the right way to describe this story because it comes together really well. I guess it's kind of, I, I guess the way I would describe it is that it it's a bit unwieldy. Like there's there's some, it's, it's dealing with topics that it cannot maybe fully uh, explore. And, and um, I, I think um, circling back to how we talk about the resolution being quite open-ended um, and, you know, possibly arguably a bit rushed in terms of the, the, the fundamental issue they were dealing with. I think I would have appreciated a bit more of a denouement, you know, maybe a voiceover by Osgood or something where it does kind of make that a bit clearer in the text of there is no easy answers. You know, we, we and, and talking about the renegotiating the ceasefire and, uh, you know, I feel like they could have done a bit more of that rather than in the, especially in the episode itself. You just have Bonnie kind of going, "You're all safe. We we're not going to address the uh, the elephant in the room. We're not going to address the fact that you're still having to assimilate and and uh, you know your your quality of life maybe isn't the best. But you know, I, I I feel like maybe they could have done more a bit more with that. But like I said, there's there's a difference. I guess there's an amount of leeway you can give it because it is dog two and it's not trying to be this serious political thriller where it tries to go into these questions in a lot of depth but i think you can still criticize maybe they could have done this a little bit with a bit more uh focus and tact uh, towards the end but 
yeah I think it's one of those episodes that just really encourages that kind of engagement yeah I think it's one of those endings that really runs up against the practical realities of making the tv show to an extent Mm. because obviously you know what you want is you want the zygons to be able to reveal themselves and integrate but it's a bit like um in fact actually i ended up thinking a bit about uh hungry earth cold blood um Mm. because there's there are some interesting similarities i mean i think this is vastly superior if i'm being honest but there's a thing of the doctor going, you know, I'm going to get these two utterly random humans to to negotiate for all of humanity, and I'm sure that will be fine. And you're like, <laughs> probably a good idea that you never went up to the surface and went, by the way, you know. Um, but then, obviously, the reason, you know, you can never negotiate a Silurian peace in the modern day is you end up with, like, what, the Silurians walking around in the background in every modern day story? And again, it's the same, isn't it? It's like, if the Zygon, if you get the you know, what I guess in many ways a lot of people would want, which is the ultimate Doctor ending where the Zygons can be themselves. What do you have then? Do you have like, imagine you're a viewer who watched, who's not watched Doctor Who first time and you think, oh, I'm going to watch exactly. the, woman, the woman who fell to Earth, uh, you know, New Doctor. And it's going as it normally does. But there's just a couple of people in Zygon costumes walking around in the background. <laughs> yeah. No one mentions anything. No, that's and- brilliant. That and they should do that. In, in I mean, part of me thinks, yeah, part of me thinks they should. Yeah, I'd love it. But I, no, I'm... Just do all the special edition box sets when they come out for the Capaldi <laughs> era. After this episode, just insert some Zygons. CGI, some Zygons. You know how in the name of the Doctor they have that montage of all the Claras in the background of various Doctor Who stories? <laughs> they should do that, but just have yeah. Zygons just popping up. But <laughs> that's a really interesting point, is that the problem with these kind of uh, especially talk to who which has to keep going it has to keep going and evolving and accommodating different characters and and always resetting to this kind of default because obviously you've got to keep it grounded in our changing world um is that you cannot you do have to you are kind of beholden to the status quo mm. ultimately um and that's a really really good point and uh i i I know. I think that's why I'm. What what I was saying is that I I I obviously I wasn't expecting them to like wrestle with the fundamental systemic changes that the issue would require. But I think it just required a bit more of a uh, what the what the book had really this clarification hmm. of they're going to renegotiate the ceasefire. There will be changes. We don't yeah. know what they are, but there will be changes. Um, but that's such an interesting point, actually, about Doctor Who and, and also just general long to long running kind of science fiction um, of, of, of always having to re- re- reset, I suppose. Um, yeah, I mean, the classic example in the new series is uh, Russell T. Davies having, you know, those big public Dalek invasions and then Moffat comes in and has to go crack eight them. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> it's like crack eight them, no one remembers. And, and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it, it's because yeah, there has to be this illusion of when you have a doctor of a modern day Earth, it has to have the illusion of being like our world for it mm-hmm. to work. And yeah, I mean, it's it's the old things like why doesn't the doctor change the history of Earth? Why why does why don't they stop all the bad things we know happening? It's because then it wouldn't be recognised be our Earth, and that's it's why I'm always a little bit wary when the series tries to give a proper reason for it. Like, so I'm like, mm-hmm. uh, you just just don't <laughs> because we know why it's a practical reason. Um, and you just kind of accept that, but and the the cracks, the other thing that they need to edit into every single story <laughs> on, the, on the special edition so releases as well. Gonna, it? They should re-release all Doctor episodes, and there'll be a handful of Zygons, a crack. There'll be a few Claras running around. 
just uh it's like where's wally you just have to spot them yeah because <laughs> uh, i suppose in the classic series unit stories the the budgetary limitations where invasions only happened in small villages and, and mm-hmm. isolated areas and home <laughs> yeah, counties right. that they didn't encounter that problem but now they've got the budget to do this scale like you're saying adam it's uh you can't completely change the world no you just got to keep like like with the silos and the zygons you've got to kick it down the road to when humanity's ready that's it. These races will emerge, but it's never happened because we've seen stories set in the future that uh, that don't feature Sirens or Zygons. So they either die out or... Yeah, because I think actually one of the things I find really interesting, actually, as well about, about this story both on TV and in the book, is the Doctor's relationship with UNIT. Because I, I, I like this one because the relationship's a little bit spiky and I quite like it when the Doctor, you know, I understand the importance of UNIT and why they're there, but I like it. And I understand, like, I understand why in the Pertwee era, which I, you know, I, I adore, I understand why that relationship got softer as it went on. It couldn't all be like Series Seven blowing up the Silurians. It, you know, at some point, it had family show you, you've got to say, okay, the Doctor's working for these people and not that bad. But now that the Doctor is, you know, not working for them full time, I guess consultancy, freelance, whatever. Um, are you, I like stories like this. Because I find it really interesting, and it, it happens in the book and in this, Kate doesn't get to remember. Kate, you know, she moves away from the box, but there's a sense that she, she can't think like the Doctor. And I, I always find Kate Stewart interesting because I'm, I'm not... I think the character's fine. I, I feel it, I have this cliched version of her in my head where every five minutes she goes, do you know who my dad is? And I go, yes, we know. It's, you know, you know um, yeah, yeah, yes, it's like Harriet Jones, but like, Julia, this is a picture of my father. Yeah, yes, we know. Thank you. Um, and it, yeah, I always feel it's interesting that she, when she first appears in Power Three, or, or actually first appears in Downtime, if you really want to <laughs> do that, but don't don't watch Downtime. Um, you know, she Power Three, and she's like, oh yeah, science leads, but she's never been portrayed as a scientist. She always like comes across as a soldier. And in this story, yeah, she, you know, she does move away from the box. She, you know, she closes it and walks back, but that's not enough. That's not enough for her to, uh, at least the doctor doesn't think that's enough for her to understand. And I'd, it's almost like, it, it's an interesting kind of little, kind of failing's quite the right word, but it's an interesting little character beat that I don't think ever really gets picked up on. But it just, I, I, I do like that spikiness there. That's really interesting. And that's a really good point, actually, because, um, I mean, her characterization does tend to vary a lot, you know, between mm. writers. Like Chibnall establishes her. She's very, she's quite, I, I, I would, I, I've seen a lot of people say that The Power of Three is her best showing as a character. Um, and um, I think maybe because a lot of people did like the appeal of this kind of more science-oriented uh, character representing unit. But, I mean, Osgood's kind of taken on that role mm. more um since i think moffat uses her more to portray that kind of different side to unit and she maybe despite her best efforts is still very much uh the military tactician the the military leader and it it, i i mean i've seen her criticized a lot in this series in particular like uh for example in the magician's apprentice um She's often, uh, people don't really like how she's kind of a bit clueless uh, and, and Clara's calling all the shots. And uh, I, I totally get that. It did kind of feel a bit like they were having unit look like they were running around like headless chickens just to make Clara look more capable when, you know, you didn't, that wasn't necessary. <laughs> uh, but um, 
I uh, I do really like that kind of tension of she's got this emotional connection to the doctor she's got that familiarity but also she is fundamentally still a soldier regardless of of what, how she wants to distance herself uh, from that um, and you see it with her shooting that Zygon and the, the, the five rounds rapid line is a bit cliche uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, but you know it, it's still it's showing us she is a soldier fundamentally and it works well with this particular doctor because the Capaldi Doctor has this contention with soldiers. You have it all throughout Series 8 where he he regards them with a lot of disdain and suspicion. And yep. um, I think that that flows into his tension with Unit in the end of Series 8 and, and, and this series as well. Um, this kind of notion that he can never fully trust her uh, or, or at least he, he trusts her, but he can't trust her with certain... Uh, responsibilities or knowledge um, which yeah it's very interesting and uh, I think that was a really good insight yeah because Bonnie gets to remember doesn't she that mm. the boxes don't do anything that there is no option for genocide or, or anything whereas Kate he wants her to still believe that that that, that, that is what the, the contingency is yeah it's interesting isn't it We're talking about the spiky relationship with UNIT well, they met obviously Harry Sullivan gets a mention in this but you know, mm. lovable Harry Sullivan, who you know, I, I I adore. I think he's a brilliant character. But here it's like, oh yeah, and he made this de- gas that would kill all Zygons. And I know some people were like, Harry wouldn't do that. But I was like, well, Harry was a soldier. Like, if he was asked to do it, he would. You know, he's he he's one of these characters. He's not changed by his traveling with the Doctor. When he gets a chance to go home, he goes home. You know, he gets that train back down that's one of the reasons i like harry it's nice to have a companion like that occasionally who isn't like this is the greatest experience of my life who's like actually uh, no i'm gonna get the train home if that's all right if i could do that but it's just uh, you know it's that interesting it's that the reminder that military uh, that unit is a military organization and that you know military organizations do things like that if they see a threat and harry's had a bad experience with the zygons as well so yeah it, it, it yeah. you know kind of makes makes sense of that as well doesn't it Greyhound leader to trap one. Emergency alert to all radar stations. What did we make of the end of the book? I, I kind of read it a couple of times. So you've got Osgood thinking about the Doctor being old. So perhaps he's set in his ways. Perhaps he was getting stale. And then the kind of the next scene is the Doctor himself. Um, I think he's back in the TARDIS and he says the doctor was tired standing in that room talking at those people feeling those feelings once again it was hard work I think that's maybe why I thought that they'd done the whole thing 15 times but maybe it's a reference to today of the doctor I guess it would soon be time for a change he felt a radical change there were things that he needed to understand to teach himself to be taught by others he needed a new perspective he'd been much the same kind of man for as long as he could remember he needed to carry on learning changing adapting That was what he'd always done. Glowing dimly somewhere, he saw a future where he might know how Bonnie felt to be somebody totally different. It would be new, it would be exciting to step away from who he had been. And I kind of couldn't... Is he talking about regeneration? Because it's only halfway through his era here, isn't it? He's still got... He's got 70 years at Bristol University. (laughs) The whole rest of this series. Maybe that's what he was thinking about. He just wanted a new vocation. (laughs) Well, I wondered whether it was about his time in the confession dial, which is like the new perspective and learning about himself kind of thing, or... 
Well, the thing is, he only really goes in for that when he think when Kara dies. You know, he yeah. goes into the confession dial because that's why he stayed in there, so he could get back to Gallifrey and and you know undo her death. Um, but that, that's very interesting. I mean, I I initially thought, is he talking about like you said, regeneration and regenerating into a different gender? Maybe like I wondered mm. if he was talking about it was foreshadowing thirteenth regeneration. But then you've got to account for series ten, where his arc is very much like he's tired and he doesn't want to regenerate for most of yeah. the that series, yeah. and he's refusing to regenerate because he just wants to kind of throw in the towel i guess so i i don't really know what the intention was there i think it's just self-reflection i think it's just a nice way to end it it's mm. uh, you know I, I just think it's a nice couple of paragraphs do you know mm. it, it, uh i don't think it's necessarily about regeneration because it's more about learning right whereas the regeneration is oh fuck it i'll just become a new person whereas this is mm-hmm. really like you know, when you're going through your performance review at work, you get the same <laughs> feedback every year and you need to improve this or this. And you're like, oh, Jesus, I can't be asked. But to really, really progress, you have to to take on some of these changes. So I guess that's, what's that's interesting cool. is the specific point at which this is in this doctor's journey because his arc in series nine is that towards the end of the series, he does go totally off the rails because his codependent relationship with Clara is so codependent and toxic in many ways that he totally loses any sense of who he is. So it's interesting that he's having this kind of philosophical moment of, I need to change and learn and and grow, where kind of the the point of the last few episodes, especially, and, and kind of the series arc is this doctor who is very set in his life with Clara and his dependency on Clara and uh, his inability to let go of her. Um, so it's just interesting how that maybe fits into the, the context of his arc. And yeah. And even the stuff where he said, I've been the same kind of man for ages, but he's he's developed a lot since series eight in, into series nine. So yeah, he's he's kind of already on, on a journey, like you say, he's already changing and learning. Because, you know, the beginning of series nine, early on in series nine, he's got those cards off Clara, hasn't he? Those sort of, like how to respond in uh, before oh, yeah. the flood, isn't it? He's got those uh, those kind of index. <laughs> Sorry for leaving got... you in Aberdeen or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, save you and your loved one slash pet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like he's already on a journey of learning, learning from Clara. So I found that very odd. And then uh, when Clara comes into the TARDIS and he says he sees a fluttering of black wings at her shoulder. Oh and yeah. Says, there was not very long left, which was like. Does he know that Clara's gonna die? It's Is that just what it's all about? It. It's just being clever and, and retconning what he yeah. knows. <laughs> it, does, it, does, it does feel like a couple of foreshadowing because the implication very much in series nine is that he's obviously thinking a lot about Clara's mortality because it comes up every single episode. Uh, mm. But yeah, I, I mean, I personally don't like the idea of him knowing um, because it kind of just. It one, it removes the doctor from us a bit when I think we're very much supposed to be within his. Pers- I mean, obviously, he's an unknowable alien, but within this series, it's very much about the kind of paranoia of when am I going to lose her? I know that this won't last forever, but I don't know when it's going to happen. And he keeps thinking it's happening over and over and again with with the Daleks and and with um, uh, before the flood and 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 then obviously Lady Me representing this anxiety around mortality and immortality and outliving the people you love. Um, so yeah, I, I I personally don't like the idea that the Doctor knew 
that it was coming uh, in other than in the very kind of ambiguous sense of of course it's going to come because she's human and none of this ever lasts you know um so so here's my ending for the book and then the doctor thought oh fuck it i'll just get a big plane to ponsapoutin <laughs> i think it's it's interesting because yeah i think that the bit I, I i agree i don't really like the idea of the doctor knowing what's you know seeing all the foreshadowing but i guess it's in there yeah partly it's just in there as a nice way to end the book but also you know capaldi's regeneration is interesting because it's one of the few in the modern series apart from eccleston that doesn't have some kind of big big foreshadowing slash prophecy in it you know um you know, Doctor Who writers have never have never moved on from Legopolis in this sense. I think it's always like, you know, there's always a sense of it. It's got to be like, oh, you see your death, and you know, I mean, don't go. I I, I fucking love Legopolis, but you know, I I don't always need the Doctor to see the foreshadowing. Are you my death kind of thing? Um, so yeah, it's not. I'd actually, to be honest, I'd totally forgotten about that. And Mark, until you read it, when you were like the end, I thought, doesn't it just end with the Osgoods going to get ice cream? Like that was literally my ending, and I think that would probably be a better ending. Mm. I, I mean, if you want to take the more ambiguous sense, uh, because I mean, I've always found it very appropriate that Clara is killed by a literal symbol of death. Like she's not just killed by something; she is killed by something that is the embodiment of death itself, uh, which I find very fitting because you know, uh, that th- there's a there's a really lovely description of Clara um, in her introductory chapter. Um, uh, sorry to go on a Clara tangent. It was inevitable. Uh, <laughs> uh, as a total aside, I am going to nitpick Peter Harness because uh, she doesn't ride a Vespa scooter. She rides a motorbike, mate. Where did... Where, where, anyway. Uh, but there's this lovely okay. bit where, he, <laughs> where he, he writes this about Clara because I, I, I think Harness really does get Clara um, as a character. Uh Clara had a complicated relationship with chaos. Um, in what she thought of as her everyday life, she was always sure to exercise a tight degree of control. She liked things neat and orderly and became uncomfortable if she wasn't in charge. However, there was a strange and messy and powerful feeling somewhere deep within her, a dangerous feeling, a desire almost to seek confusion and uncertainty and let herself be borne away by them like a leaf tumbling in the wind. She thought of this as her everyday life. The doctor with his box of secrets seemed to come from that dark and dangerous and everyday within her. She wondered if someone, if some, she wondered sometimes whether, in fact, she hadn't called him up herself, summoned him like a demon from the caves of her subconscious mind. The TARDIS, his time machine, seemed to be a perfect expression of her own psyche. On the outside, tidy, authoritative, and interesting to look at. On the inside, more vast than imagination, capable of going anywhere and full of haphazard and dangerous things. Which I, I, that's one of my favorite descriptions of Clara I've seen because it that captures her so well she's she's kind of this this person who is just so pathologically obsessed with uh, big dreaming bigger uh, becoming something more than herself and um uh just tying back to the raven thing I, I I kind of like the idea of the raven that the doctor sees just being the symbol of death rather than oh she's going to be killed by a raven in a few weeks uh i i really like that idea i i think that works better um and that's why i've always liked the fact that she dies in that specific way because i think that just is very fitting for her character anyway apologies for the uh, tangent there <laughs> no it, it's a fair point face the emu wouldn't have the same um <laughs> effect no, it, it wouldn't <laughs> face the budgie 
<laughs> and the wordplay in this, like, like in everyday life, and the doctor's accent, he thinks of it as Gallifreyan as well. I really, really <laughs> like that Yeah, there's a lot of lovely bits of wordplay in this. And a bit of shade about Anton Deck as well when when Clara was watching the uh, the TV in the flat when she's in in her mind in the pod and um, so she doesn't particularly like Anton Deck. It reminded me of just before series one went out and Christopher Eccleston was being interviewed by Jonathan Ross on his chat show and and he said, you know, aren't you worried about going up against kind of a ratings juggernaut like Anton Deck? And he just went, a couple of Geordies, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> I think people forget that what Doctor Who actually went up against on ITV was celebrity wrestling. I remember this very clearly. Yeah, yeah, 2005. It was, uh, I think, oh, I think it was celebrity wrestling. At some point, it definitely went up against celebrity wrestling. And then the Matt Smith years, you had Don't Scare the Hair, um, which I used to love catching because it looked like a McCoy episode gone wild. <laughs> And uh, yeah, none, none of those are still going and celebrating their 60th anniversary this year. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> it was interesting the way that, that Peter Harness revealed that Clara was Bonnie because, yes. you know, people going into reading this kind of already knew that from the TV shows. So I was interested, but it's it's very subtly done, isn't it? You get the scenes where Clara is asking about units weapons and and mm -hmm. capabilities but it's not entirely clear why she's asking about it she could just be asking it from a tactical point of view like you say when she when she kind of walks in and takes over unit or in um, like nightmare and silver she marshals all the uh, the defenses and stuff doesn't she in that one and that paragraph just ends when it says and bonnie started to spike the weapons mm -hmm. and that's that's the reveal and it's a really nice way of doing it i thought well, this is what something I really like about uh, the way Harness does the the Bonnie uh, characterization um, is that I, I think it's there's obviously this running through line that happens uh, particularly in the uh, fourth series of the David Tennant era where there's this idea of the Doctor turning his companions into soldiers. Um, uh, you see it with Martha especially, uh, but you also see it with Rose. And, you know, in, his, in the, the finale, there's Davros going on about your children of time and look what you've made them into. And, and obviously that, that in turn comes back a little bit in this series. You have uh, uh, in The Girl Who Died, uh, Clara going, turning, in, uh, turning these Vikings into fighters, that's not like you. Um, and the Doctor says, I used to think that too. And she's like, what happened? And he's like, you. Um, and I like this idea is if, if you see more and more uh, this series is that Clara becomes a bit of a military leader um, in the first episode, especially, you know, she's ordering snipers around uh, when she's confronting Missy. She's um, <laughs> she gets called up. Um, I think uh, Kate says, tell the president I'll call him back because Clara's walked into the room and um uh, so I, I like the I, I like the idea that Clara's gotten to this point in her character evolution where uh, she could go around ordering military people around, and you're not quite sure whether that is necessary out of character or not because she's very comfortable in that role and it ties into her doctor-like kind of evolution. Um, but then obviously the, the the line that really gives it away is when she grabs an assault rifle and it's like, you know what, I'm enjoying this and that's where you're like okay no yeah no that's that's a bit too much uh, but I do like the fact that there's enough ambiguity in terms of Clara as a character she's not strictly uh black and white uh does everything the right way uh because she is a messy character so Bonnie's kind of it she's the one that kind of the perfect character to have 
supplanted or impersonated because you can toy around with that ambiguity a bit more with her um like she's really like says something really out of pocket to jack like you're middle-aged that's why you think the world's ending and you think well that's kind of rude but you know clara does say inappropriate things sometimes (laughs) so so yeah i i really i I, I haven't seen Secret Invasion, the new series. Um, I haven't heard very good things about it, but one of the big complaints is that it doesn't really do much with the paranoia of having these shapeshifters kind of taking over beloved characters and who, who could be a Skrull, who, who's the real deal. Um, and I think that's something this episode does really well. I mean, you, you can see the twist coming, you know, like... Why, why is Clara dressed like a supervillain on this day? <laughs> she just happens to be. Uh, but it's still, I think it works really well. And especially for younger viewers, I think they must, you know, have found the reveal really exciting and the cliffhanger is really good as well. I always forget about the um, reverse, the the Kate Stewart rev- unreveal, you know? It's like, mm. oh, she's obviously become a Zygon and then that gets reversed. I thought that's, that's another great bit of just thriller writing like mm. this is a really good thriller yeah especially because it, it shows a lot more of uh, Kate's capabilities because obviously she's already been taken over once in the day of the doctor and she I like the fact that she was clearly like nope we're not doing this again <laughs> yeah yeah and, and not to talk too much about secret invasion but it's this is this is far better um on a fraction of the budget mm-hmm. um it's uh, yeah it's really well done i've seen quite a few people say about how much better the you know doctor who did it uh, years ago than than secret invasion have done it now and and i suppose for the bbc to publish the novelization during the broadcast mm-hmm. it's just really uh, really <laughs> brought that home to people as well it's brought uh, you know, because you know, we probably all rewatched it and and read it at the same time, and then and then tuning into that week was highlighted even more. I think the mm. um, the inadequacies of it. Is uh, do you think that's why they delayed the novelization for a year? They were like, <laughs> I know, tell you what, we'll put it out. <laughs> they'll they'll muck it up. They'll muck it up. It'll be fine. It'll look, make us look really good. <laughs> Excellent foresight. <laughs> but I guess um as a kind of closing thought, it, it goes to show like uh, these kind of stories are not easy to do. Uh, I, I, I don't know many examples other than the Secret Invasion series of comics and obviously this story, um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, obviously. Uh, but I, I think it's a very hard uh, premise to do well. Uh, and, um, you know, I think for all of its its flaws that there may be i think this episode or this story and and especially the novelization which i do think enhances a lot and has actually made me kind of do a little uh not a total 360 but you know i i've uh i've kind of appreciated the story even more uh reading this novelization and uh seeing it how seeing how it 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 does deepen it in some ways or at least it reminds me of things and reframes things uh, in a really nice way and I, I think um, you know it, it's very commendable of Harness uh, and it really especially with things like Secret Invasion where there's kind of real cynicism uh, behind a lot of the uh, impetus in Marvel these days you know uh, like throwing a big CGI battle at the end and uh, all of this stuff it, it you can appreciate a lot more what Doctor Who does and particularly Harness's kind of earnestness and passion that he puts into his stories and uh uh, regardless of what your opinion is on the 
on how well it works and the implications, I think you can definitely appreciate that he really does go for it and he gives it his all and uh, he gives you a lot to talk about. <laughs> Well, that's our look at the Zygon Invasion by Peter Harness. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, thanks for joining me. If you'd all like to let our listeners know where else they can find you on the internet. I'm just going to phone everyone out of my backside. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you can hear me on The Real McCoy podcast um i'd love to say we're monthly but to be honest we get about three episodes a year these days you can also hear me on harry sullivan as an imbecile um <laughs> you can find me uh on i'm not gonna call it x you can find me on twitter uh adam j clegg uh you can also find me i started posting more on blue sky um uh, I, I don't know how you say your blue sky handle these days but if you look for adam clegg you should be able to find me um it, it's pretty good and if you want an invite let me know i've got they keep coming and i've run out of people to give them to so there we go but yeah that's where you can find me uh i am on uh twitter uh which i'm also going to refuse to call x because, <laughs> uh, uh at uh, undiscovered adventure which is uh just written as undiscovered adv um and uh i am also uh my project's available on twitter uh as Clara Oswald TUA, uh, we, I, I uh, the project is still happening. I just am very, very busy and uh, doing all of the behind the scenes stuff and uh, doing a lot of writing at the moment and editing. And uh, yeah, there'll be an update on that soon. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm not currently on Blue Sky, uh, but I should definitely consider it because Twitter is like a sinking ship at the moment. <laughs> And yeah, I'm still on, on Twitter as well, at Quark McMalice. You can follow the podcast there, at Trap1 underscore. And the podcast is also on Blue Sky and Mastodon and Threads. You can find us on any of the lifeboats that uh, that people are currently fleeing to from Twitter. You can find all our previous episodes at trap1.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Join us next time with a new panel. We'll be discussing something else from the world of Doctor Who. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.